when you get a raise, when you get pregnant, there's good news that happens. We share it. We go on Facebook and then on Twitter and then on Instagram and then on Snapchat and we let the world know good news has come because it's easy to share good news and we want people to be a part of it. And so I got to thinking, what would it look like if the resurrection happened today in a social media saturated world? Would Jesus, on the day that he resurrected, would he have sent a tweet to 12 of his followers saying, I'm back? <laughs> would Jesus have posted a resurrection selfie with the hashtag, I told you? <laughs> hashtag, I ain't finished. Hashtag not today's Satan. I mean, I mean, whatever hashtag was out there. Would Jesus have posted like a before and after picture, like Good Friday before and then Easter Sunday after? I mean, what would Jesus have done on social media? Maybe Jesus wouldn't have done any of that. Because when we look at the Gospels, we see something very clear about Jesus and surprising about the good news of the resurrection, and it is this, that Jesus is less interested in public announcements and more interested in personal encounters. Jesus is less interested in public announcements and more interested in personal encounters. Think about it. If Jesus wanted to, he could have appeared to Pilate in the middle of the night. He could have showed up in the temple during a worship service just like this, in the middle of the service, and just said, like, I'm back, you know. He could have gone to the people who crucified him, the Roman soldiers who crucified him, and said, how do you like me now? <laughs> he could have appeared in the Roman Colosseum like gladiators did, like Maximus from the movie Gladiator, and said, are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? He could have done all of that, but Jesus is less interested in public announcements and more interested in personal encounters. And this is what we see in John's gospel. Each of the gospels have their own flavor to them. Each of their gospels have their own style to them. If you like uh, sermons and teachings, the gospel of Matthew is for you. If you like a fast-paced kind of New York City read, the Gospel of Mark is for you. If you like good stories and parables, the Gospel of Luke is for you. But if you want to hear stories of intimate encounters, the Gospel of John is for you. In John's Gospel, we see over and over Jesus having deep uh, encounters and personal encounters with people. In John's Gospel, Jesus has a conversation, a theological conversation with a man named Nicodemus in the middle of the night. The first time that we get Nick at night. That's where Nick at night comes from. <laughs> Nicodemus at night there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and he's talking to this Nicodemus about what it means to be born again. In John's gospel, Jesus meets with a woman at a well who has been marginalized and offers her living water. In John's gospel, Jesus weeps with Mary and comforts Martha after their brother Lazarus dies. And in John's gospel, after the resurrection, you see Jesus go after three of his followers. The resurrection is this cosmic 
magnificent event with implications for the entire universe. But when Jesus comes out of the tomb on Easter Sunday morning, he doesn't announce it to the world. He looks for his friends. And today we're going to look at in John 20 and John 21, we're going to see three different stories where Jesus encounters three of his friends, three of his disciples who had three different challenges And as I preach this message, I believe that all of us in this room have struggled with at least one of the challenges that his disciples and followers have. I'm going to focus on the stories of Mary Magdalene, of Thomas, and of Peter. And in each of these stories, Jesus pursues these people. He doesn't wait for them to come to him. He comes after them. And we see very clearly that God will come after you with his love. God will come after you and pursue you with his grace. God never tires of pursuing you. And the first person he encounters is Mary, Mary Magdalene. And Jesus encounters her in her sorrow. He encounters her in her sorrow. Mary Magdalene encounters Jesus. So Jesus pursues her and encounters her in her sorrow. The story says in John 20, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. As a woman, Mary would have been on the fringe of society. Moreover, when you hear about Mary and learn about Mary's story, we learn that she had some troubling things about her past. In the Gospels, it says that at one point, she had seven demons cast out of her. And however you choose to understand that, Mary is a woman with a lot of trauma, a a woman with a lot of pain, who has experienced some deep hurt in her life. But Mary would meet Jesus along the way, and Jesus would pour out grace and mercy and forgiveness. And all of a sudden, Mary, this woman who experienced so much trauma and so much pain and so much sorrow, is now welcomed by Jesus. Jesus embraces her. She now feels like she belongs. But now Jesus, the one who she connected to, has died. And now her hopes and dreams are gone. And Mary is caught now in a deep, deep sorrow. And sorrow and loss can make us all feel like we're trapped. We feel like joy will never really come. That happiness really is only an illusion. And many of us know what this feels like. So many of you are here on Easter Sunday morning with sorrow. You have the sorrow of a marriage that didn't work out. The sorrow of a death of a loved one. The sorrow of a sickness or a job loss. The sorrow of dreams that you had for your life that haven't been realized. We all know what it's like to feel sorrow. And so Mary is at the tomb weeping. And it's at this moment that Jesus encounters her and Jesus speaks and Jesus says, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. 
calls her by name. In verse 16, with one word, Mary's world is turned upside down, and Jesus simply says to her, Mary. What I love about that simple word of Jesus is that this person happens to be someone who has a sketchy past. And so when Jesus calls her by name, he knows everything about her past. He knows her failures, he knows her mistakes, he knows her struggles, and he still calls her by name. And you can be sure that Jesus knows everything about you in this room. He knows your struggles, he knows your failures, he knows your addictions, he knows your ups, he knows your downs, and he calls you still by name. There's something nice when someone calls you by name especially someone who you respect, someone who is an authority figure, someone who remembers your name. And we all know what it feels like for someone to remember our name, and we all know what it feels like to, for someone to forget our name. I've had people come up to me after not seeing them for a while, and they go, Robert, it's so good to see you. And he goes, no, it's, it's rich, rich, rich. No, no, Robert, I mean, yeah, you're looking good, Robert. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's rich. It's rich. People have forgotten our name, and we know what it's like to forget other people's names. It happens at church all the time. You know it when someone says, brother, sister, so good to see you. What is her name? What is her name? We know what it's like for someone to forget our name, and we know what it's like for someone to, uh, for you to forget someone else's name. And the story reminds us that with the billions upon billions of people on this planet, Jesus knows you by name and he calls you by name. The IRS knows you by your tax numbers. The state knows you by your driver's license. The bank knows you by your account number. Your employer knows you by your social security number. Your insurance company knows you by your policy number. But aren't you glad God knows you by name? And he calls you by name. Jesus has been calling you by name. The question is not whether Jesus calls us or knows us. The question is, do you know his voice? That's the Easter Sunday story. And that's the Easter Sunday message. Jesus calls Mary and she responds, Rabboni, that is teacher. It is you. Jesus calls her by name. When we are overwhelmed with grief, when we are overwhelmed with pain, when we are overwhelmed with sorrow, Jesus says, I know your name. I know your name. I know your sorrow, Jesus says. I know your disappointment. I know your loss. I know your heartache. And I am still calling you by name. Easter reminds us that Jesus meets us in our sorrow. In addition to this, Jesus, after he encounters Mary, we see the story continues. And I love that Jesus is the one who's pursuing these disciples. He's pursuing them. He's finding them. This is, this is, this is Jesus' thing. He, he finds us. And the second disciple that he finds is named Thomas. And while Jesus meets Mary in her sorrow, Jesus meets Thomas in his skepticism. He meets Thomas in his skepticism. 
The story says in verse 24, but Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was one of the disciples, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples said, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas says, do you have a picture, a selfie, anything there? No, I don't believe it. They said, no, we saw him. You got no proof, no video, I, I don't believe it. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Verse 26, it says, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Could you imagine for a whole week, they're trying to say, Thomas, believe, man. We saw him. And he's like, nope, a whole week passes by. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Interestingly enough, Jesus is physical enough to eat with them, and he's spiritual enough to just enter into a room. This is a resurrected, glorified body he has. And so he comes in the room, he says, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it to my side. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus meets us in our skepticism. Now, Thomas, he gets a bad rap. For 2,000 years, he's been called Doubting Thomas. But you know what? You would doubt as well. Thomas put all of his hope in this one person, and this one person was crucified right before his eyes. And so what we see in Thomas is what we see in many people who doubt, and that is that doubt is often an expression of a deep wound. Doubt is often an expression of a deep wound. Often beneath our skepticism, beneath our doubt, is a hurt. Thomas is hurting. He has his own scars and wounds, and he has a hard time believing. In our first service, we had a, a, a man who used to be a Muslim who got baptized, and he was telling his story. And he was saying that what, 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 what helped him, what, what kept him from coming to Jesus wasn't intellectual stuff. It was just some pain of abandonment, that he felt that God didn't care about him. And often what's beneath our own skepticism and often what's beneath our own doubts is our scars and wounds. And so the story goes that the disciples are locked in a room for fear of their lives, and Jesus appears just like that, says, peace be with you. And I imagine them saying, you don't have to keep saying peace, Jesus, if you would stop scaring us like this. You just keep showing up just like that. Peace be with you. And he looks for Thomas. I imagine Jesus is looking around the room. He probably knows that Thomas is doubting. All the other disciples have seen him. I imagine Jesus lovingly and tenderly looks at Thomas and says, Thomas, put your hand on my side. Thomas, touch my hands. Look at my wounds. And Thomas sees it, and all of a sudden, skepticism turns into surrender. Skepticism turns into worship. How Thomas saw the scars of Jesus. Now, some of us in this room, maybe you're visiting, maybe you have a hard time with Christianity, maybe you have a hard time with the Christian faith and the claims about the Christian faith, and some of you have legitimate questions that do need answers. But many of us in this room are skeptical, not because we don't have the answers, we're skeptical because we've been wounded along the way, wounded by people, and somehow it has caused us 
to have some form of doubt and skepticism. A couple of months ago, I was in Arizona, and I mentioned this a couple of months ago. I was speaking to some pastors in Arizona, and on one of the Uber rides, I got in a car, and, and there was a, a 30-year-old uh, woman in the car, so she was driving. And it was about a 30-minute drive, and she asked what I was there for. I said, I'm a pastor. I'm speaking to other pastors. And then I struck up a conversation about spirituality, and I said, oh, do, you, do you go to church? Are you a Christian? She said, no, I don't. She said, I'm, um, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I create my own path from different religions. And we just started talking about her story with this path that she is creating. I asked her about Jesus, and she says, well, I, I have a lot of doubts. I have doubts about the Bible. And little by little, we started conversing. After a, a time of silence, she noticed, she said, you know, usually when I have conversations with Christians, they're pretty judgmental, but thanks, thanks for listening. I said, oh, no, no problem. We had another about 15 minutes to go. And after about a two minutes of just silence, she begins to speak again. And she says, you know, I used to go to church. And she said, but I, I stopped going to church one day. And she said, the reason I stopped going to church, she said, uh, I grew up in a family that was pretty poor. And we used to attend church. And one day my mother was in a financial uh, crisis and she needed a little bit of support to get her out of it. And so she went to the church that she attended. And she asked the pastor, uh, could I just get a little bit of support for this rough season that I'm in? And the pastor said, give me one moment. And the pastor began to look at her giving records, her tithing records. And the pastor said, I'm sorry, you haven't given here. That means I can't help you. And the woman said, she, the daughter said, my mother never went to church again. And I never went to church again either. Often what's beneath our doubt and what's beneath our skepticism and not just intellectual arguments and theological principles as much as that's needed. Often what's beneath our doubts and beneath our skepticism is a hurt, is a wound, is pain. And the risen Jesus comes to Thomas and says, Thomas, I know your wounds, but look at my wounds. I know what it's like to be betrayed. I know what it's like to be abandoned. I know what it's like to be cursed at. I know what it's like to be crucified. Thomas, come here, come here. Touch my side. Thomas, look, touch my hand. Stop doubting and believe. And so I love that Jesus doesn't say, how dare you not believe after all those miracles I did for you. Multiplied bread and fish. Stop the storm. I did all that for you. And you don't believe still? But no, no. Jesus is so tender, isn't he? He's so gentle, isn't he? And with all of your questions and skepticism about Christianity, God is not saying, believe now. He, he, he's saying, let me show you my wounds. Let me show you my hands. Jesus meets us in our skepticism. And so, listen, Jesus meets Mary in her sorrow. He meets Thomas in his skepticism. And then Jesus is on his way again looking for another disciple. Look how personal Jesus is. He could have said, listen, everyone get in a group. Everyone get in a group. We're going to talk here. We're going to deal with everyone's problems right here. No. But he, he finds them in their vulnerable moments. And the next person he comes to is Peter. And Jesus meets Peter in his shame. 
He meets Mary in her sorrow. He meets Thomas in his skepticism. He meets Peter in his shame. He calls Mary by name. He calls Thomas by name. He calls Peter by name. The story says in John 21 that afterward, Jesus appeared to his, again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, and it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. Now, what's fascinating about this is Peter has already seen Jesus up to this point. Jesus has revealed himself to Peter. This is not the first encounter that Jesus is having with Peter. But yet something has so overcome Peter that he separates himself from Jesus. You would think if you saw Jesus for the first time, you don't want to let him out of your sight. Lord, you came back from the dead. You can go through walls. You can either, please don't leave me. I want to stay as close to you as possible. But yet something has kept Peter from staying close to Jesus. And you know what that thing is? It's shame. Peter goes back to what he was doing before Jesus called him. And it's almost as if Peter has given up on himself. It's almost as if Peter says that there's nothing that I can do. And this is what shame does. Shame is so devastating. Because although Jesus is alive, Peter doesn't think that message applies to him. And this is what shame does. Shame will tell you uh, what you know is true, but it doesn't fully apply to you. Shame will tell you what you know is true, but it doesn't fully apply to you. It applies to other people, surely. Forgiveness for you, grace for you, mercy for you, but not for me. That's shame. Salvation for you, resurrection for you. I've done too much harm. I've done too much bad. It doesn't apply to me. And out of these three, shame might be the most difficult challenge out of the three. Because Peter, listen, Peter had some great moments with Jesus. He had some powerful moments in which God used him. Peter's the one to confess Jesus is the Messiah. Peter's the one to walk on water with Jesus. I know it was only about two seconds, but he walked on water with Jesus. Peter was one who said, I will die with you. But when Jesus is arrested, Peter denies him three times. And he, Peter now distances himself from Jesus. And could you imagine the depth of shame that was washing over him? That he has nothing to offer now. Grace for you, but not for me. And shame says, there's nothing that I can do to recover from what I've done. And many of us in this room might be held captive to shame. It's the prodigal son saying, I'll come back home, but I'm not a son. I'll be a servant. That's shame. As opposed to saying, I'm going to come back into my father's house. And so Jesus meets Peter. And later on in the gospels, Jesus approaches Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I do, Lord. And he says, feed my sheep. In other words, now is your time to offer leadership. A couple of moments later, Jesus says to him a second time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's getting a little frustrated. You, Lord, I, you know I love you. You know I do. He says, feed my sheep. Then a third time, Jesus, Peter, do you love me? And Peter at this point is exasperated. Lord, you know I love you. He said, feed my sheep. 
And what I love about this is Peter denied Jesus three times. And Jesus is about to reinstate Peter by having him confess this three times. Peter, I know you denied me three times. Do you love me? Yes, I do. Do you love me? Yes, I do. Do you love me? Yes, I do. Peter, God's grace is never too far for you. Your shame cannot keep my love from you. And at that moment, Jesus Christ reinstates Peter and sends him on his way. I wonder what's the shame that you're carrying this Easter Sunday morning? What's the sense of deficiency? What's the sense that something's wrong with you? That nothing, that you are unfixable, that you are broken and cannot be mended? What's the shame that comes your way? And some of you might think, when I clean myself up, then I'll come to God, but it doesn't work that way. God says, when I clean you up, then you can come to me. And so God, Jesus calls Mary by name in her sorrow. He meets Thomas and calls him by name in his skepticism. He calls Peter and calls him by name in his sorrow. And we see over and over again that Jesus is less interested in public announcements and more interested in personal encounters. And Jesus, the risen Jesus, wants to have a personal encounter with you right now. No matter what you've done, he will chase you down with love. Goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. He will pursue you with everlasting love and grace and compassion. He calls us by name. The question is, do we know his name? On Easter Sunday morning, we are called to listen to the voice of love that comes from the risen Jesus. As he calls you by name, whatever circumstance you're in, sorrow, skepticism, or shame, and he simply invites us to respond to him in love. Let's pray together. I wonder today what you're facing on this Easter Sunday. For some of you, it's sorrow, loss, having a hard time today even celebrating because of the pain that has come your way. And if you're feeling great sorrow, Jesus knows you and calls you by name. Maybe you're wounded and are experiencing some skepticism, having a hard time believing. And with your skepticism and doubt, Jesus very tenderly comes to you as well and calls you by name. And maybe you've failed a lot. Life is not what you want it to be. You've made some bad decisions and shame has somehow overtaken you. Even then, and maybe especially then, Jesus calls you by name. What love. What tenderness. What grace, what mercy. Maybe you've never said yes to Jesus today. I could assure you today that he's calling you by name. He knows your story. He knows where you've been. He knows your ups and your downs. He knows your wounds. He knows your sins. He knows your addictions. He knows your failures. And with all that, he's saying, come to me. 
come to me. I will forgive you. I will give you the life that you so long for. I will give you the joy that you so long for. I will give you the peace that you so long for. And he's calling you by name today. Lord Jesus, thank you for the ways that you pursue us, the ways that you continually come to us in sorrow and skepticism and shame. Lord, you love us with an everlasting love. And Lord, may we simply respond in faith and in trust that you are alive. And you are not only alive, you are for us, not against us. And so, Lord, at, at this moment, we come to the table of communion, thanking you for this meal, that we can enjoy fellowship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, let's all stand together. I want to invite those who are going to be offering the bread and the cup to come to your various tables. And we're going to close by taking communion together. And this is just a wonderful way to close our time. We are reminded of the extent to which Jesus went to demonstrate his love. And so I'd invite you, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, for those of you who have said yes to him, um, when the ushers lead you, you can come forward, you can dip the bread in the cup and take it back to your seat. And now lead us together to receive it together. If you're not a follower of Jesus, at the end of our service, we're going to have a prayer team here. And if you sense God is calling you by name, um, my hope is that you would say yes to that. Before we come forward, um, let's pray this uh, prayer of confession. Mike, if you can put that on, on the screen. Let's pray this with gratitude, knowing that God is for us. His grace and love is for each and every one of you this morning. Let's pray this together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you through our own fault, in thought, in word, in deed, in what we have done and what we have left undone. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us all our offenses and grant that we may serve you in newness of life, to the glory of your name. Amen. Please come forward. By his stripes we are healed. By his nail-pierced hands we're free. By his blood Wash clean now we have the victory power of sin is broken Jesus overcame it all he has won our freedom Jesus has won
Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, For I received this command from the Lord, what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, in the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As the people of God, forgiven and saved by Jesus, let's all take this together.
Okay, let me invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing as we walk out of this place rejoicing. Brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness of the truth that Jesus is alive. And may you live a life with Christ, raised with Christ, experiencing all his power and forgiveness and grace and mercy. And may you extend that power and forgiveness and grace and mercy to all you encounter this week. I bless you all today in the strong, in the beautiful, in the resurrected name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Grace and peace to you all.